Well, I would like to ask if you would to pray for my strength this morning. I woke up this morning feeling very ill, <clears throat> and uh, I just had chalked it up to a barbecue sandwich that I had eaten last night. At least I'm assuming that was what it was as I tasted it the second time when it came back through over my taste buds. But uh, because of that, I am, I've been told that there's been a stomach bug that's going around. And so I am not going to greet you by shaking your hand. If you just get a head nod from me, just consider that to be my hospitality to you this morning. Uh, so please forgive me on that. But please join me in prayer. Lord, we come to you contemplating this week of all weeks, of holy weeks, particularly thinking, Lord, of what has transpired over this past week. We thank you, Lord, for common graces that you have given us. You have given us, Lord, the wonder of brave men and women who are first responders, who see to our needs, Lord, in times of tragedy. You have given your word and faithful ministers, Lord, who provide us hope in such a time. But more importantly, you have given us the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That, Lord, when we contemplate ourselves and our own sin, when we think of the evil that each of us are capable of doing, we remember the gospel as a historical event, that our King has come, and He has come to make all things new. And so, Lord, as we praise You on this particular day, we pray that you would build our faith, restore our trust in what you are doing, because you are the true, good, kind God who loves his people and has saved us from our sin. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Please turn back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. This morning, we're launching into a, a new section of Genesis. We began our study of this book with the prologue, which taught us the source of all things is the Creator God. Then we looked at the book of Adam, where we narrowed down on God's special creation of men and women. In the prologue, we had already learned that the Lord created men and women to be His special image bearers and regents upon the earth. And in the book of Adam, we see how God established this through the institution of work and of marriage. We also saw the origin of sin within chapter 3 and its awful outcome as Adam and Eve's firstborn, Cain, murdered his brother out of jealousy in chapter 4. The line of Cain is established in the latter part of this chapter, and we saw how corrupt it was becoming. The descendants of Cain become vengeful and polygamous, a people of no justice. But there is hope in the remaining transitory verses of Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So at the close of the book of Adam, we see that while the rest of humanity was plummeting into darkness, there was at least one hopeful seed of the woman that was calling upon the name of Yahweh in dependence upon him. In Genesis chapter 5, we have the second Toledoth sequence with the words, this is the book of the generations of Adam. 
As noted earlier, there are 10 of these sections or books, and this is the second. And while verse 1 specifies the person of Adam, the majority of the material focuses upon Adam's 10th descendant, Noah. So this is actually the book of Noah, Adam and Eve's righteous offspring. And the material will continue on through Genesis chapter 9, verse 29. Now, no doubt most of you have heard of Noah and his famous ark, which saved him and his family through a worldwide flood. And another word for flood is deluge. Noah's book is easily divisible into three sections, pre-deluge or pre-flood, if you prefer, the deluge itself, and post-deluge. And we're going to try to tackle the first of these this morning. What the world was like before the flood and get to the rest of these in the near future. However, this first section is divided into two parts, the genealogy of Noah and the condition of humanity. Let's begin with this genealogy here in chapter 5. The first tax of the narrator is to get us to the person of Noah. And this is a perfect text for Palm Sunday. As we ponder Jesus as the means of salvation entering into Jerusalem triumphantly, we get to consider the foundation of that event as God prepares Noah and his family to be saved from his wrath through the flood. As we've done before, I first want to address a few technical matters before we delve into the theological implications of this chapter. This is a good time to, to talk about genealogies as there are several of these throughout the Bible. There are two types of genealogies. There are linear genealogies and there are segmented genealogies. What we have in Genesis 5 is a linear genealogy. <coughs> Excuse me. It follows the direct descension of one generation to another as though on a timeline. It is linear. The same could be said for the genealogy of chapter 4, where Cain's line is sequenced from Enoch to Lamech. So a linear genealogy is one generation moving to the next. Now turn a couple of pages to Genesis chapter 10 and we'll see a segmented genealogy. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In this passage, we learn of sons who were born to Noah's boys after the flood. And the verses that follow trace each of these sons beginning with the youngest, Japheth in verses 2 through 5, then Noah's middle son, Ham, in verses 6 through 20, and concludes with Shem in verses 21 through 31. The generations are not linear, but segmented according to each son, and they are in reverse order from the youngest to the oldest. Each type of genealogy has a purpose in what it's trying to teach. Now turn back to chapter 5, and we can see the purpose of this genealogy. We already had the transitory verses in chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. Cain's line in chapter 4 becomes more sinful and rebellious. But now Seth's line traces something different. It's not that this line is completely pure and sinless, but this line is still seeking its dependence upon Yahweh. We see that in the introductory verses in verse 22 and in verse 28 and 29 when Noah is born. The main concern for the narrator is how the divine blessing is given from one generation to the other. That is the purpose of this genealogy in chapter 5. The writer is highlighting the divine seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Now two more technical matters concerning this. I am often asked, 
why I am a young earth creationist. And by that, I believe that the earth is less than a million years old rather than the billions of years that some other scholars propose. And by this, it means that I believe that God created certain things to appear aged or for better clarity, already functioning in a mature manner. Things such as geological strata and light from distant galaxies. Now, I know that some would scoff at such a notion, and I, I am okay with being ridiculed for that, as I assure you, I am criticized for much more important matters than the age of the earth. But for my old age creationist friends, I still stand in a orthodox position. And even if you disagree with me, we can be in harmony as long as you agree that God could have created in much shorter time if he chose, that he's not bound by anything, including time. As long as we're on the same page with God's unlimited omnipotence, we are fine. I am confident that when I stand before the Lord in heaven, the last thing he will be concerned about is me holding to young earth theory based upon the Bible instead of asking me, well, Blair, didn't you read those scientific journals that were available to you? Even if I say, yes, Lord, but I just wasn't convinced, I stuck to the Bible, I think even in my ignorance, I will be safe. He's that gracious. But one of our clues is here in Genesis 5. If we believe that mankind was created on day six, and we believe these ages in the chapter to be accurate, then from Adam to Noah is only a period of about 1,700 years, not millions of years. Now, I do want to be transparent. I am aware that biblical genealogies typically teach a theological principle and are not always intended to be specific. Some are known to skip a few generations. And that very well may be the case here in Genesis 5, especially as it's balanced with Genesis chapter 11. But I still do not see how we can arrive at billions of years, much less a million years, even if a few generations are absent. I still think we're th talking about creation being only thousands of years old. But let me show you what I mean by this balance with Genesis 11. Genealogies are typically arranged to be mnemonic, meaning to be easily memorized. Each genealogy in these two chapters have 10 generations. In Jewish lore, 10 is the number of completeness. There are 10 generations mentioned between Adam and Noah, and in chapter 11, there are 10 generations between Shem and Abram, later called Abraham. In addition to the number 10, the number seven is also significant in Jewish tradition. Seven is the number of divine completion. Thus, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1 is in multiples of seven, which, by the way, we know a few of the names are missing from that count as well. That is not a mistake or an error as long as it's the known practice of the literature to do this in a memorable manner. And there is significance in the seventh generation of chapter 5. Enoch is the seventh and is taken up to be with God. So again, the purpose of the genealogy is to emphasize the passing of the divine blessing of dependence upon Yahweh. So from a technical perspective, Genesis 5 traces the divine blessing from Adam to Noah, providing us 10 generations that balance with what follows in chapter 11 within a few thousand years. So now that we have those technical matters in sight, let's move on to the individual figures within the chapter. The first should be Adam. And the first thing that we should note is that even though the last two verses of chapter 4 noted that Seth was a son of Adam, 
the narrator is quick to point this out again. We should also pick up on the fact that the narrator specifies that this Adam was the historical Adam. Verse 2 qualifies this Adam with the Adam of Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It is the same person. The Adam that leads this genealogy is not a man chosen from amongst other existing people. He is the first person created. The narrator is also keen to specify in verse 3 that Seth received the likeness of God from his father Adam. We've already learned that being made in the image of God, in his likeness, meant that mankind was to be God's vice regent on the earth. He was to rule and steward the earth on behalf of the Lord. This sacred duty passed from Adam to Seth. Now, in a previous sermon, I already pointed out that most likely Adam and Eve had already had other descendants other than Cain and Abel prior to Seth's birth. We should not presume that Seth was the third born of the first couple. In fact, we're told in verse 4 that Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. The text does not make it necessary that Seth was the third child in line. In fact, Seth's name means he appointed or he set. God set his image on Seth from the other children of Adam and Eve. The divine blessing is not granted necessarily based on being the firstborn, but on God's sovereign choice. Now, we'll see this practice again later in Genesis with Esau and his younger twin, Jacob. Jacob's son, Judah, will receive the divine blessing rather than Reuben, his firstborn, or the more righteous younger brother, Joseph. Our narrator is emphasizing that the likeness of God was going through the line of Seth regardless of the other children that Adam and Eve conceived. We might also point out that the ravages of sin had not taken its full biological toll yet. The pre-Diluvian humans appear to have lived a, a much older life than when we get to chapter 11. Almost by half, who knows what disease were ushered in by the flood. Adam lives to be 930 years before he dies. He has a descendant, Methuselah, in verse 27, who is the oldest recorded human at 969 years. This is in contrast to chapter 11. Shem lived at least 600 years old, and his oldest descendant was Aparkshad, who lived to be 438. The rest were reduced to a third of that age. The next notable on the list is Enoch, he of the seventh generation. In verse 22, we're told that Enoch walked with God. This implies an intimate communion with God. Usually, Old Testament characters are noted that they walked before their God, like King Hezekiah in 2 Kings 20, or the patriarchs in Genesis 17. But here, Enoch, and a little later, Noah in chapter 6, verse 9, are unusual in that each walked with God. And because of this, Enoch was rewarded by not dying, but being taken up by God. In the genealogy, he is the only person who doesn't suffer physical death. God took him in his 365th year. In 2 Kings chapter 2, the prophet Elijah had such a privilege when he also was taken into heaven. The writer of Hebrews tells us why Enoch received such an honor. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, he states, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. 
Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So faith in God prior to the law was an operation to account one righteous. Now we'll get into that idea in future sermons, but I want to clarify this here. And the final notable on the list is Lamech in verse 28. Remember from Cain's genealogy, he had a descendant named Lamech who was wicked and vengeful. But this Lamech in the line of Seth is different. He looks around him and and he noticed the earth is cursed by Yahweh. He is aware of the sin that surrounds him. And he names his son Noah, which in Hebrew means rest or relief in the hopes and faith that Yahweh will bring relief from the curse. And a little later in chapter 6 verse 9, this son named Noah will be described as righteous and blameless within his generation. And like his great-grandfather Enoch, he will walk with his God. Getting to Noah is the whole point of this new section of Genesis chapter 5. Now, before we move into chapter 6, we need to make a couple of observations that should enlighten us to these pre-flood conditions. Number one, death was overtaking the earth. Death was overtaking the earth. By Lamech's own confession, the ground of the earth was cursed. Adam and Eve's sin of Genesis 3, despite nearly two millennia, was still spreading its consequences. Death was reigning. Enoch is notable as an exception only in that he did not die. But everyone else did pass, and we know that is due to the penalty of sin from chapter 3. And although the line of Seth was a chosen line, there was still sin in its ranks. The death of these men and women prove it. The consequence of sin will become apparent even after the flood with Noah's sons. And observation number two here is that this appears to be the only line of humanity that is still calling upon Yahweh, one that is still seeking its creator and how to please him. And we shall see, though it is only a remnant, God is still listening to this remnant and he is still faithful to it. So now that the narrator has shown us that Noah is a descendant of Seth, who is from the seed of the woman Eve in Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, he can now describe the conditions upon the earth at the time of Noah's generation. He gives us the big picture of Adam and Eve's descendants. And there is really, in one word, it can be summed up, wicked. And by that, I don't mean the 1990s adjective that meant cool. I mean completely and utterly rebellious against God and common decency. In the first eight verses, the narrator describes how it became this way and God's ultimate solution to the problem. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any as they chose. Now, before I go further, there's been a lot of debate about who the sons of God might be and who are the Nephilim or giants in verse 4. 
Some scholars propose that the sons of God were some type of angels who intermarried with humans and produced a race of supernatural giants upon the earth. They hold this position because they're trying to apply what we call the analogy of faith in this passage. This is where you use scripture from one place to explain an inexplicable passage in another. Now, we do have much later prophetic literature where angels are referred to as sons of God. Later in the Pentateuch, in Numbers first, uh, chapter 13, the Israelite spies report that Nephilim reside in the promised land before the conquest. But I believe such an interpretation that these are angels within Genesis 6 are extreme. And I believe that for two reasons. One... Jesus explicitly said in Matthew chapter 20, verse 30, that angels do not give themselves into marriage. And whatever Jesus says, I'm going to go with what he says every single time. That's just the way Jesus is for me. That's how I roll. And reason number two, it seems more likely that Nephilim was an appropriation of a phrase to what the Israelites' spies saw. They saw a race of men who were bigger than they had ever encountered, and Nephilim seemed to be a good way of describing them. If we read here in verse 4, it also refers to them as mighty men of renown. Now, if I use the analogy of faith in the same manner, I could say that David's mighty men are who we mean in Genesis chapter 6. But that would be anachronistic and illogical. I have no doubt that such conquering and valiant men are what is intended when David's band of warriors is mentioned in Samuel. And then the author appropriates the same phrase, mighty men, to describe them. Now, if you believe contrary, perhaps when the Lord makes you the pastor of Providence Baptist Church, you can explain your reasons to believe that these are supernatural race of men descended from demons. But it seems more reasonable to believe that what we read here about Cessline in Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, that sons of God, those who continued in the image of God, are who is intended in this passage. And these men, still contaminated by the fall, became attracted to the daughters of Cain, or perhaps those also among their line who were abandoning God. Same old story. In the words of Hank Williams Jr., they are just continuing a family tradition. You can see the verbs used in verse 2 here are the same verbs from Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, when Eve ate of the fruit. The sons of God looked at the daughters of man, saw that they were attractive or pleasing to the eye, and they took these women as their wives. When we read Genesis 3, Eve did the same exact thing with the forbidden fruit. She looked at it. She saw it was pleasing to the eye and could make one wise, and she took it. It's the same old story. Mankind looks at something prohibited and consciously allows the heart to settle on it and then takes it despite the warning. And these men who lack self-control sought after members of the opposite sex that they shouldn't seek, those that would have a corrupting influence upon them. And as they do so, they become more bloodthirsty and war-driven like their descendants came. And this is what the Lord says in verse 3. My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. 
And I actually do believe the better translation is contend with, which should be in your footnotes of your Bibles. While this is literal, I think it better captures the meaning. Otherwise, it makes it sound like God's Spirit was residing inside of individual men prior to this rather than among them. And because of this, God is going to bring judgment on man within 120 years. Not that a person's lifespan will be limited to 120 years, as some propose. After all, Noah and his grandsons will live over 400 years. No, God is going to give Noah a mission that will last 120 years. As Noah builds his ark during this period, God will give mankind a sufficient length of time to repent. But as we shall see, outside of Noah, no one does. Now, in verses 5 through 7, we see God's solution. What he saw, how he felt, and what he will do. Now, Yahweh looks upon man, and what he sees is utter wickedness. He sees not only the action, but he, being omniscient, also sees the heart. And you can see that God observes that this is a chronic problem. According to verse 5, the heart of men and women are continually evil. Next, we're told how God felt about what he saw. Yahweh regretted making man, and his heart was grieved over the sheer sin. Now, in theology, this is what we call an anthropomorphism. God the Father is not a man. He is spirit, and he does not have a physical heart, nor does he have emotions like a man. And we have also noted that whatever God does is perfect and right. Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. So it would be wrong to say that when we're told that God regretted that he made man on the earth as his regents, to think that somehow God made a mistake or an error. However, there are times the author of the Bible appropriates words that convey human emotions and apply them to the Lord so that we might have understanding about the emotions of God in a moment. And these words should make us take note. When God looked at all this sinful rebellion, he regretted allowing man to be his image bearer. He was grieved in his heart. We can feel the pathos of that in our own soul. How disappointed God was in such a moment. And this leads him to his decision. What he will do. He will pronounce judgment on every living thing upon the earth. He will blot it out. He will wipe it out. For he was sorry that he had made such rebellious creatures. Man. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? Just how bad was it? Well, imagine a world with no laws, no one righteous at all, not even Christians seeking to pursue holiness that that could hold back some sin, everyone doing what they think is right in their own eyes, everyone, no righteous law, no regard for life, no respect for others, no means of justice, just the human heart doing whatever it wants to do. Left unbridled, what would your heart seek to do? But there is hope here as well in verse 8. Despite all that the Lord saw upon the earth, and thankfully the eyes of God see everything, he did see one. 
one individual out of the entire world's population at the time. He saw Noah. And Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Noah would escape the wrath of God's flood. Now next week, we will look at the details of the deluge. But let's pause here and let's take stock of what we've learned from these verses. There are four facts that I wish to draw your attention. And I'm going to be quick with these. Number one, a little sin goes a long way. A little sin goes a long way. What began with a bite of fruit within a period of 2,000 years has become outright, full-blown contamination of the entire earth. It is so bad that God even decides to wipe out all of nature. Sin is that pervasive. It's so rampant that we should constantly be asking ourselves, where do I see sin in my own heart? Which leads us to number two. The creator of the universe is not content to allow this rebellion to run rampant. He does, and he will again bring judgment for this disobedience. He does not overlook it. Don't be trite with sin. It is no small matter that can be passed over. Just a little sin will go a long way, and it must be dealt with. Number three, notice this amazing grace period. Prior to this moment, there was some way that men had access to the Spirit of God. We saw it with Cain and Abel when they presented their sacrifices. Seth and his son Enosh were calling upon the name of Yahweh. Enoch walked with God. Lamech hoped in a future without a curse. Noah will hear from God directly in the latter part of this chapter. Thus, in verse 3, God gives mankind 120 years that anyone would repent. Peter, commenting on these verses in Genesis within his second letter, wrote this. The Lord was not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God was graciously giving a period of time of repentance. Similarly, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now listen to this part in this period of grace. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In his grace, God patiently passed over sin for a period of time without his full wrath. But eventually, all must be judged. And finally, our fourth fact. Despite sin, God saved Noah. It's amazing, really. The first thing the Bible will note of Noah after the flood is that he will plant a vineyard so he can make wine and get drunk. 
He gets stinky drunk. He passes out. Noah's righteousness comes from something different than his behavior. Hebrews 11 tells us it comes from his faith in Yahweh. But nevertheless, despite such behavior, God, by his grace, saves him. Noah desired to walk with his creator. He was seeking him. And his good creator, out of his own mercy and grace, chose to save him. Friend, allow me to point out the obvious to you this morning. Your sin is a much bigger issue than you give it credit. It is so bad before a holy God, so offensive, that it deserves the judgment of wiping out the whole earth. And even now, our merciful God is giving you time to repent, to acknowledge just how bad your sin is before him. And if you see it, do what we just read in Romans chapter 3 and place your faith in what Jesus did in the cross. And just as the wooden ark passed through the judgment of the flood, so too will the wooden cross pass through the judgment on your behalf if you will only believe that Jesus suffered the penalty for your sin. And perhaps you think you're too small, that you're too insignificant for God to notice. Maybe you think, man, I continually keep blowing it. I keep messing up, messing up, and messing up. Remember Noah. One man out of the entire world's population. And God knew his heart was to seek him. This same God is watching you now. And if you hear his voice in his word telling you, you are a sinner and you deserve my wrath, but my son will save you through his death on the cross and his resurrection, you cast your faith upon that. You place your absolute trust in Christ alone, and you will be saved. Let's pray. What a glorious salvation. Lord, there are people who think very highly of themselves, and I was one of them, who would look at an event like the worldwide flood and we would say, how can a God be so cruel that he would wipe out all those people? Lord, we should actually be standing in awe and amazement that you would save even one. that you would save one family. Because, Lord, we obviously don't have an understanding of just how offensive our sin is before you. And as we have even sung about in this service, from sacred head now wounded by the choir to stricken, smitten, and afflicted, the only means to reconcile us to you was that your son experienced the full wrath that we deserve for each and every sin. That is how bad our sin is. That it took your one and only son to absorb it on our behalf. And Lord, you were gracious in that you have given us time to repent, to to cast ourselves upon Jesus. And so Lord, I pray 
that for the sinner that is sitting here, which should be each and every one of us, that we are thinking about the Lord Jesus and what he has done on our behalf. And we are not trying to justify ourselves by saying, yeah, but I did this and I did that and I had these thoughts or I said these prayers, but that, Lord, we are thinking only Jesus, only Jesus can save us. And in the midst of that, Lord, the sinner who for the first time is realizing that, that they see your mercy and your grace and you are saying to them, come, lonely heart, come to me now. Come to me. There's no one too small and I will save you. Lord, work amongst us now. Let us fill your spirit as you work. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.